Welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by MAP. My name is Alex Clements and today on the show we've got uh, sports scientist Neil Henderson. If you haven't already, make sure you check out MAP's uh, website, map.cc. They've just released a new colour, Ivy, for their Pro Force long sleeve jersey. So if you need that or any other fresh kit, make sure you check them out at map.cc. We talked to Neil about his role at the Suffest the head of sports science, uh, Wahoo, the head of sports science. He's coaches many athletes, uh, including currently Rowan Dennis. We talk a little bit about his transition, the effect of the Olympics being postponed a year, what that means, how to train indoors, and how he's managing his athletes through this interesting time and how the different the different personalities that he looks after um, affects the way that he writes their program um, and how he helps them get through this tricky period. I uh, hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you do like it, please uh, let a friend know, leave us a review. And if you want to check out the full video, I've posted this on YouTube as well, Stanley Street Social. And I uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome Neil Henderson to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Definitely. Thanks for having me. I think I think you have you have chatted to Campbell not on the podcast, but uh, about maybe a bit later on in the year he did a he did a subfest program, and you were yep. his coach. You were the one in charge of getting him back in condition. Exactly. I had actually worked with Campbell for a little bit back in uh, I guess it was twenty fifteen or sixteen. Um, I was I working with BMC a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So it's good to, good to catch up with them again a few years on. And do you want to just run me through your roles now? There's yeah. Roles and job titles. Yeah. So uh, I am uh, working. So I've worked with the Sufferfest for many years and I'm the, the chief science officer with the Sufferfest, which Last summer, the Sufferfest was acquired by Wahoo Fitness, and so I am now actually serving as the the head of the sports science department for Wahoo Fitness as well. So, uh, the the bulk of my responsibility, though, is within developing the sports science applications within the Sufferfest app. Though we're adding in some new things and some of the uh, product development and, and uh, testing side of things within Wahoo as well. So it's a pretty exciting role, and I still coach a few. Uh, Fairly fast athletes out there. <laughs> who's who's on your coaching books now? There's there's uh, one, one well known. Yeah, athlete. I was going to say there's one. The, the probably most well known fella is uh, Rowan Dennis, uh, Adelaide boy, and I've uh, been working with Rowan since the fall of 2012. So basically, when he turned pro, uh, I've been with him from then ever since. A um, couple other top quality uh, pro tour level riders that I coach: Kasha Niwiadoma. Uh, with Canyon SRAM and Taylor Wiles of Trek Segafredo. Um, those are the, the uh, other few like top, top level uh, cyclists that I got to have some, some uh, development riders that I work with uh, Colby Lang from the U S here and work with some triathletes, uh, uh, junior and U 23 world champion, uh, Taylor Nib, who's now as racing uh, mostly as an elite, but uh, she's pretty top quality and another continental level pro Bria Edwards. So mm. still have a couple of masters athletes that I've coached for, uh, in one case, almost over 15 years. So have a few long-term relationships like that. 
So you're well. very you're you're a very busy man. How how did that how did that transition go with the Suffest being bought out by Wahoo? Um, yeah, how that, it, and how's that changed your role? Yeah, so um, I had uh, worked at a big sports medicine facility for for many years, from 2001 through 2013. And while I was doing that, I was also uh, coaching athletes and had started a coaching company before you know, way, way back in 1999 when there were hundreds of dollars to be made as a coach. Um, and that was something that was kind of on the side and started coaching a, a fellow named Taylor Finney um, around 2006. And uh, his career and trajectory was was pretty rapid. So I went to the 2008 Olympic Games with him and also 2012. And uh, I coached Taylor into the 2013 season. And then we kind of uh, moved different directions, still really good friends with him, but um, coaching was something that I was doing kind of on the side and it kept growing and growing and growing. And after 2012, um, I had over 20 athletes. I was coaching them almost all exclusively professional triathletes and cyclists and uh, decided that it was time to just try to focus on coaching uh, for a period of time. So I left that, that position in the big sportsman facility and just did my own thing with apex coaching and uh, brought on a couple other coaches and opened up a, an office in Boulder and that grew a bit. And I started doing a lot more with the Sufferfest too in 2013 and they kept growing as well. And so it was really uh, one of those things uh, late in 2018 that I talked with David McQuillan from Sufferfest and took last year a, a three quarter time role with the Sufferfest overseeing the sports science side of things while still then spending about a quarter of my time with the coaching side of things. And, uh, it was really then the, the, you know, rapid growth and, and, uh, things that came in conjunction with Wahoo that made me say, you know, it's time to make a, a little bit bigger commitment and go, go full time in with Wahoo, uh, effectively starting January this year. And so still coaching a few athletes, which they, you know, no one expect that that's going on, but it's a, it's a much lesser number now than I used to coach in the past. So got about 10 folks that I work with now, which is still probably right on the, right on the hairy edge for me being, you know, with the position with, with Wahoo and with family, I have a, a wife and two daughters, one, one daughter is older and one is younger here in school still. So two dogs and a rabbit and a cat, <laughs> all that kind of stuff in the house. I had the shovel, you know, foot and a half of snow twice this week in Boulder. So yeah, always something going on. What can you talk about any projects you're working on with Wahoo specifically? Yeah. Um, one that's kind of uh, fully launching on Monday officially is a new workout kind of test effort called the half Monty. Um, and so we developed uh, kind of the, the 40p, the full frontal test, which is really looking at kind of peak power output all the way out to sustained hour power output to get those four levels that we use in 40p. So uh, that test, the full frontal is really, really pretty intense. You know, it's not an easy one. It does give us a lot of information. And, that, and yes. that's your test? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. So started using that back. I think the first time was in around 2007, 2008. I actually worked uh, with Sarah Hammer when she was recovering from actually she broke her collarbone at the 2008 Olympic Games and I uh, was working with her and her coach a bit on assessing fitness for really the, the Omnium event 
that was going to be coming into the 2012 Olympic Games. It required a little bit different skill set than what she had developed at that time. So putting that all together was a combination for her as well as for Taylor because just doing like a 20-minute TT didn't really make sense to me relative to like an individual pursuit, which was Taylor's focus back then, 2008, 9, 10. And so the full frontal was something that we could get a much bigger, broader picture of what is going on with an athlete in a single test session and then be able to, to, to prescribe appropriate training relative to those individual differences in peak power, power at VO2 max, and then aerobic capacity levels where kind of in the past everyone was doing exclusively everything by FTP, which is great for steady state work, but when we're talking about that high end, uh, high intensity interval type work, it's really irrelevant when some people, you know, like Chris Boardman, I think his peak power sprinting back in the day was a 800 some watts. He could hold over 400 watts for an hour, but he couldn't sprint, you know, more than 800 watts where Taylor was a, a different animal. Again, his threshold was, we'll say somewhere in the 400 watt range, but his peak power was over 2000 watts. So he had a five fold, you know, difference versus a guy like Chris Boardman having a two fold difference. So if they're doing high intensity intervals, if I prescribe them, you know, Chris Boardman might be, you know, having difficulty at 150% of FTP to do like a series of repeat, you know, 20 second efforts where Taylor is like whistling, you know, like that's not even hard. Like, okay, I'm done. You know, that's yeah. not even, that's not even a training session. So having that variation, that's where we came up with the 4DP. We've worked on developing this newest session that comes out officially on Monday uh, April 20th is the half Monty as being a two part test where we can identify max aerobic power from a ramp, which is kind of a, you know, like a standard thing that we've, uh, you know, if you've ever been to a lab and you've done a VO2 max test, a lot of times it's really that same kind of like one minute, go, 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 go until you, until you hit your limit. And that's what we use to identify power at VO2 max. You know, we don't have the whole fancy, breathing apparatus to measure VO2 max when you do that at your house generally, unless you're you know, crazy mad scientist at home, which would be awesome and cool. Um, <laughs> but generally speaking, we can still get that power at VO2 max without all that stuff. And then we have a second portion of the te test that's actually a controlled effort that is keeping you below threshold and by measuring points in kind of the warm up, the max aerobic power and that steady state below threshold, we're able to calculate an FTP value pretty accurately without having you do a, an all out sustained effort. Mm. So that's our, our newest uh, test that we've been working on. And, you know, that's been over a year and a half of development in the app alone and pulling in data that we've been using and gathering from, from athletes and individuals for even longer than that. I'm really interested. So you worked with Taylor and Rowan, both when they were the, the, the two hottest properties in cycling, pretty much. They were the, they were the kings of the under-23s. Um, yeah, yeah. How did, you, how did you see them develop from that point where I think they were one, two at Worlds maybe one year to, yeah, yeah, into so the professional ranks? Definitely. So and how did their careers change? Oh man, uh, you know, for sure, wild ride for both of them, you know, a little bit different. Uh, I was coaching Taylor in 2008 at, at Junior Worlds in Cape Town, South Africa. And the, the final for the individual pursuit was, was Taylor versus Rowan. And, and Taylor did come out on top there. Uh, Taylor had written a, written a Junior World record in June, a Junior World record time in June in the 3K pursuit, which he had 
he had actually never competed in a 3K until Junior Worlds of 2008. He started off doing 4K individual pursuits at our elite nationals in the fall of 2007 and did his first World Cup in actually Sydney uh, in December of 2007 or late November um, and finished 10th and then or ninth ninth or tenth and then the week after was the beijing test event world cup and he ended up finishing fourth in the 4k individual pursuit at his second ever world cup and his third ever you know really 4k pursuit and then you know he won the la world cup january of 2008 and then he got sick a little bit and you know did the copenhagen world cup and finished uh, tied for the overall world cup lead which would have given him an automatic spot to the olympics but they went to a tiebreaker and ended up, he ended up second in the World Cup standing. So he had to go to Worlds and put in a good ride there in March of 2008 to actually be able to come to qualify then for Beijing. And so the Junior Worlds was held just a few weeks before the Beijing Olympics. So we had this big trip where he was the defending Junior World Champion in the time trial as well. And so we were doing both the 3K pursuit and then the junior TT and then went to Bordeaux to train and then up to Beijing. Rowan was racing the, the team pursuit with the Aussie, Aussie squad and uh, the individual pursuit there. And that's really the first time I had you know, seen him, but never really, didn't really meet him there. It wasn't until the following year at the World Championships of track in uh, Frusco in, in Poland that got to meet Rowan uh, for the first time. And I saw him because I started to work, you know, continue to work with Taylor, but also with our U.S. women's team pursuit program. So after Taylor left the track in 2010, because they took the individual pursuit out of the Olympic program for 2012, Taylor took that focus onto the road straight away where Rowan was continuing to race on the track. And, and you know, he had his focus with team pursuit and taking a silver medal in, in London, which was pretty phenomenal. And Taylor had switched and uh, finished on the road and ended up finishing fourth in both the road race and the time trial, which was both absolutely phenomenal and both absolutely brutal in both cases to be that close and, and, and not be able to take the medal away. So, you know, they both had different things going on. They both had some levels of success and, you know, Taylor on the road for sure, uh, you know, came in and, and came hot, you know, 2012 Worlds was second to Tony Martin. And uh, I think Rowan that year, U23 Worlds was second um, in the U23 uh, TT. Uh, so, you know, 2013, I was coaching both of them and they were, you know, both at the at the World Champs in, in Italy. And I think uh, Taylor finished, I believe, fifth, fifth or sixth in the TT in, in 13 and Rowan finished, I believe 10th or 11th. And from that point, you know, Rowan started to kind of come up and Taylor had kind of hit like a high point and then he had a really bad crash in 2014. And so I wasn't coaching him then, but still, you know, uh, somebody that I've, you know, stayed in touch with quite a bit, you know, both him and his parents actually had helped out, uh, with some of the camps that Connie and Davis, Taylor's parents, ran, which, you know, if you don't know, they're, they're pretty good cyclists, both, uh, themselves. Um, and so, you know, in a way like Taylor, I was working with him all the way up to that point and then Rowan started and he kind of had some of that early success too, even as a first year pro in 2013 at the Dauphine and, and, uh, you know, going beyond that. And it's been a wild ride, you know, and Rowan finally hit everything together at the world's ITT and, 
in uh, 2018 and then last year again repeated, which has been been pretty awesome. Were you confident at that point in 2013 that this that Rowan is going to be a superstar? Uh, I mean, you never know exactly what somebody is going to do, but he had all the right tools to do it. He had the capacity, he had the drive, he had had some success for sure. He, you know, very much a top performer. Um, and yeah, and you find, you know, that the mental drive coupled with that capacity is really what, what determines how far somebody goes. Usually, you know, there's a lot of people who have the drive that don't necessarily have the full physical capacity or physiological abilities and still get pretty close or occasionally get a, get a, get a good, you know, get a very good result. Uh, but the guys who are able to kind of do that and repeat it, have that super combination of the physical physiological and then the mental capacity to stay and work hard enough to express what that ability is that's a big part of it being able to stay committed and stay focused is is that the part like have you, have you can you well for you what's the most important point for an athlete to have what what's what's that the thing part, that makes that drive going, drive yeah. i mean it's drive honestly um Without the drive, no matter how good somebody is, they're never going to top out. And so that's just going to be a frustration. If you have a super talented athlete who doesn't work and doesn't have drive, that's just a coach's ultimate frustration. And a good coach, you know, depending on the person, if you can find what, what helps make them tick and help ignite that in some cases, great. In some cases, it's really like something that it's just like a wet log, man. You can't get it to get on fire. You know, even <laughs> though it might be capable, it's just just not going there's no fire happening so for me the drive is a big part of it and and being able to stay grounded throughout that because even you know both of those guys that you've seen like the high points right but there have been some pretty low points all along the way whether it was with Rowan or with Taylor like Taylor when I mentioned back in 2008 he got he had mono Um, He had won that January World Cup and then he got mono and went to the Copenhagen World Cup and finished 10th so from a high to kind of a low and missing and winning out the World Cup overall and had to recover in a fairly short period of time to be ready for, for Worlds in March in Manchester. And he had to perform there, which fortunately, again, he put together a good ride and finished seventh, which allowed him to go, you know, take that step and get that qualifying spot to go to the Beijing Olympics at, at age 18, um, which was absolutely massive and kind of crazy, especially he hadn't even been racing the track for a year, you know, by the time he went to the Olympics, literally his first, first pursuit on the track was in basically September, October of 2007. And he was competing in Beijing in, in August of, of 2008. So that's kind of a wild ride. And he had the drive, the drive and the commitment was all in there. Hmm. Do you work at all with the American track squad, Olympic squad? Um, I did in 2012 and in 2016, and, and uh, after Rio, I, I took a step back from that. So I haven't worked with that program since uh, since 2016. But those were really good experiences. I mean, we were super underdogs, super underfunded, unfund, you know, way under in terms of what other countries had available and how they trained and what they were able to do. And I'd say we kind of were hitting above our weight because we had people who were committed both on the staff, but especially the athletes, you know, each and every one of those riders, you know, in both, both of those teams that we had 20, 2012, which was an absolute underdog 
you know, and then in, in 2016, which was pretty phenomenal. I mean, the, the biggest thing there with that team in 2016 was winning the world championships actually in London, beating the Brits at home was for sure a, a highlight, uh, first ever, you know, American team pursuit world championship title like that. So that was big. And a silver medal is still pretty dang, uh, pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. They got us though. They got us in, in the, the Brits got us though in, in Rio. So, you know, 2020, I know 2021 now, I know those, those girls uh, that were there um, have, have a fire, you know, Chloe especially. And they're looking pretty good from what we, what we saw at the world champs. They look like yeah. they're in super condition. And I guess the, Olympics going a year out. How how do, uh, you're coaching Rowan for one, yeah, but what yeah. what would they be changing internally? Like it's yeah, it, it's a hiccup. Like because you've got this massive ramp for four years, four years. All you've got is this one event that really yeah. matters, and then all of a sudden it's a year later. Yeah, it's a big it's a big change. Um, the you know i guess the good of it is everyone in the world is in the same is in a similar situation that it's like okay it's changed um you know i've seen some things of like oh my gosh it's so whatever it's like it is what it is like you can't like get all sad or angry or upset or frustrated for very long about it being next year it's okay that's the situation at hand and now how do we re uh, how do we adapt and refocus? So for right now, we've kind of pulled back a little bit. So otherwise, right now would have been a really pretty heavy load going into the Giro d'Italia was, was Rowan's race program and then uh, probably would have done Poland and then, then, then basically from there over to Tokyo. So we had our you know, 2020 plan and schedule and everything was, was going swell until everything wasn't until a month ago. And so now it's completely changed. Rowan isn't training with the same intensity level and, and uh, pressure as we would have had if it was in three months time that it's, you know, now, okay, it's 15 months away. So pull back a little bit. He's still training, you know, if you, I don't know if you saw last Sunday, he, you know, rode with his teammates and went kind of fast and yeah. <laughs> on one of those, uh, you know, e, e, e format rides, uh, you know, he's able to put out power, but he's not doing the same training. So we're, we're training, you know, 50, 60% of a normal training load because he's in Girona, lockdown, only on the trainer. And so instead of trying to like squeeze everything out of him right now, we're going to wait till we have targets and especially till he can get outside, hopefully be able to do some of his training outside. And then we'll start to build up again and, and recalibrate everything for 15 months from now, not three months from now. You're the man that writes that program. You, yep. Have you got that plan to attain now to the next, to the day of the Olympics 2021? Um, not completely because there's still some unknowns. You know, we have, uh, we have a tentative plan of this year. We're going to, we're actually going to uh, plan out next Tuesday a bit how we're going to manage between now and then knowing that, you know, there's certain things that are on the calendar right now, but if they change, you know, how to manage that. So we're, we've taken this period, this first month to just like, okay, you know, there's no benefit in 
making a hard plan when there are no targets and too many unknowns. So pull back, assess a little bit, and then we can start to move forward. And I would imagine we're still going to have to make some, some adaptations, you know, based on what the, what the current schedule for the rest of this year, um, I would love to see it go off as planned and, and I'm hoping that will be the case, but if it's not, we'll be able to adapt. So the ability to focus is important, but the ability to adjust and refocus is even more important in these kind of times. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's a big part of, of managing that as well. And will he win? It's the goal. We're not going there for, for, uh, uh, for the sushi and <laughs> sake, you know? Um, so with you, with these athletes now, we talked about, we've got, a, we've got another year, but we've also got a season on hold. Everything's on hold. Everything's pending so much unknown. Yeah. What are you telling them to do right now? Yeah. It, it depends a little bit on the person. So like as a great example, uh, both, Kasha and Taylor Wiles, you know, Kasha Niwiyodoma and Taylor Wiles. Kasha's in, in Girona as well. And, and Taylor Wiles is, she was in Girona and then flew back to the US out in California. So out in California, she has access to pretty good weather and is able to continue to ride outside. She's training a, a pretty decent amount, you know, not again, the same amount. We're mixing up a few more things, some more yoga, some more strength training, some trail running. Because again, their race schedule is even more unknown, right? I mean, the, the announcement that came out this week is in six weeks or four four more weeks, we'll tell you something about the women's races, which is like, what? Like that's kind of crazy. Sorry. Um, and so, Kasha is in in Girona, and you know she's riding inside a little bit, but not again. She's not. She doesn't love a lot of structured intervals on the trainer, and so. If I were asking her to do a lot of that, it would probably be more counterproductive. So using a lot, you know, looser schedule for Kasha where Taylor has a couple days where she does some specific stuff and she is able to get outside, fortunately. And so there's, there's different approaches for those two where Roland inside is perfectly happy to do specific quality work, you know, coming from a track background, plenty of her work in his, in his past. Uh, and even in the you know past few years, even you know, is no problem to to jump on the erg and do do specific work, and then get out on the road and finish up with some endurance. And you know, you find what works for the person, and rather than try to just put them into one particular like this is the only way. You know, if if, if a coach says there's only one way to success, I'd say maybe look for a different coach. You know, there's a lot of different paths to the top of the mountain. And you got to find for a given person what's going to help them the best to get there with sometimes reducing the stress and strain because everyone's under some sort of like just mental stress with what's going on. And so not adding extra training related stress, even not just like the training itself, but like thinking about like if I gave, you know, uh, Kasha, you know, a two hour trainer ride with all kinds of intervals, she'd just, you know, that would not mesh well with her where Ron boom checks the box done he's good he's happy he's on to the next thing yeah. uh Taylor a little bit you know can go either way um not doing as much inside because she now does have the option outside so okay we'll send her out and do some do some work but just not at the same 
we're not the same high intensity load, I would say right now, as we would normally be for pretty much anyone that I'm working with. For the people that are stuck inside that can't leave the house, are you monitoring them more carefully? Are there things you're looking for? Are there things you're worried about? Definitely. There's there's a few things to take a look at. So again, you're just making sure somebody's got a good setup at home. Um, number one, you know, whatever kind of trainer they're on, you know, smart trainer has definitely some advantages um, over like, a, you know, some of the other trainers, but having a fan set up and making sure they're just drinking enough during because, you know, there's a fair amount of sweat typically even with a good fan set up that, you know, preventing them from overheating on those kind of indoor sessions is, is an important aspect of things and uh, assessing again, where are they at heart rate versus power over time? You know, what kind of trends are they seeing? You know, is that fitness just kind of like holding pattern overall, or maybe even a slight decrease in fitness or what's going on? Like those are the kind of things that, that you know, looking at right now, I'm trying to, you know, make sure that, that uh, again, we're not trying to hit the highest level of fitness with what we're doing inside right now. And so it's a little bit more, a little bit more managed efforts consistently. Have you got any uh, tips and tricks for the punters at home? We're, we're not locked down here in Australia, but we're a yeah. lot of people are indoors. Indoor training's got bananas. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, things that I would think about is, you know, on your, on your inside rides, you know, having some purpose to what you're doing. Um, again, some people have thought of the in, indoor workouts as exclusively about just like full, you know, full throttle, hard efforts always all the time. And you can't do that. If you're, if you're riding inside, you know, five days a week, like two or three should have some quality and a couple days should be just more general endurance. And to do that, well, you know, give yourself some entertainment options. Um, definitely good. Uh, you know, we have different training sessions in, in our app. So within the suffer test, uh, one of the things you can do, you can pull up like a higher intensity training one, and then adjust all the levels down. You know, you can take a, what would be a hard workout and, and run it at like 70% or individually adjust the FTP and, and map targets down so that it ends up being, you know, kind of an endurance ride. And you'll still have some of the, the entertainment value, you know, with that, you know, the videos that we have on those, you know, there's different race footage and ride footage. So, you know, there's something going on there um watching some old races you know that's old school style you know we i used to have all kinds of videotapes uh way way back and and you know watch a video and then you know when i was working uh years ago we had you know cds and so we'd watch a cd of of a race and then do like whatever intervals while watching that uh, things again we have a whole lot more apps available now that are far better uh than that but you know every now and then kicking it in old school and doing that is, is, is kind of fun or even just move watching, you know, movie or, or series or something like that for some of your general endurance day to, days to keep you from like pushing hard all the time. So was, be smart was, with it. I was talking to an EF writer yesterday and he said he's got into horror movies since um, being <laughs> locked down on the turbo because this is so yeah. engaging. And so uh, exactly take everything so, away. Yeah, I would say generally, probably for most folks around two hours is is getting into the upper limit of most indoor training sessions where you're going to find a benefit. If you start going longer than that, you're 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 kind of you know you're going to take a lot more brain power than it is a physical stressor. 
And so you only have so much, you know, in terms of motivation in a week. Uh, so, you know, use it wisely, you know, doing, doing a four hour endurance ride. I think there's better ways to gain, gain fitness than that yeah. right now. I've got a couple of listener questions to finish things off with. Um, All right. Question around athlete psychology, who, how, how do athletes compare the ones that you work with is in particular, I guess, to you can give a first case scenario, but the question asks, how does Rowan Dennis compare to a Elia Viviani? Oh man. Um, I know Elia minimally just really from seeing him at the track. Uh, honestly, each person, whether they're, you know, an athlete who does certain, uh, specific types of, of, you know, formatted roles within a team, um, you see such a wide variety. So you can have two different sprinters still with pretty different personalities or two different classics riders with very different personalities. Um, and so the mental approach that, that they need and, and how they look at things clearly can be a little bit different. So a lot of it is kind of like, you know, one, one strategy doesn't fit everyone and one style is not, you know, doesn't carry across. So like when I talk with uh, a group of athletes, even if they were doing the same race, let's just say if I had, if I had a, a couple folks that were competing at the same event, I would potentially and would and do tell each person often slightly different things because what that individual needs um, and what's going to help them most does vary. So what works for uh, Rowan in terms of how we approach a TT is different than how Taylor Wiles rides a TT and approaches it. So clearly some, some differences, even though they might have some, some similarities. How much work do you do with, uh, we did a podcast with David Spindler at the start of the year, which is yet to be released, but he, he works with Rowan as well. Yes, How much crossover definitely. do you two have in your uh, workload and touch? Yep. Um, uh, David and I have some conversations. Um, David, Rowan and I together have conversations. Rowan and I have conversations and David and Rowan have conversations. So there's a mix of things where there's one-on-one -on -one that I have with Rowan that David and Rowan and have one-on-one. -on -one. There's one-on-one -on -one time that David and I talk. We spoke yesterday and actually this coming weekend, Tuesday, you know, David, Rowan and I are going to talk about certain things together. So um, it's part of a team, you know, ultimately any, any, you know, high level athlete has a, has a, a core group typically of, of people that they work with that are kind of in that, in that high performance team that helps that person. And so some people have a bigger team, some people have a smaller team, but clearly uh, David is a very important part of, of Rowan's team. He's an important part of the team as, as uh, uh, with me and, and Rowan and, and him all together. You know, we've spent a lot of time together, especially last year. Um, but over the past few years, you know, there's been, a lot of communication in different formats between, you know, the three of us and then others, of course, you know, the Australian and, and, uh, uh, you know, Bradley is massively, you know, engaged in, in what's going on as we're getting ready for Tokyo. And, you know, there's a few other folks that are, that are in that. Yeah. So another listener question, uh, what is something as a coach that an athlete has taught you? Oh boy. Um, I probably the, actually one of the best things that I learned many years ago 
was from Connie Carpenter, who was 1984 Olympic gold medalist, um, and Taylor Finney's mom. Um, and at, I forget, I think it was at one of the World Cups, and it was, um, I was asking the question, like, how are you feeling? It, like, not long before the race. And afterwards, you know, Connie like looked at me and I was like, oh shit, what did I say? Like, cause she's like, I look at, Con you know, Connie, I call her the mama bear. Like she protects her, her, her young ones uh, very fiercely. And afterwards she says, don't ask the question. Cause then he's thinking, well, how do I feel? What is, it's really task specific right now. Is there anything you need from me would be a far better thing because how does he feel right now is irrelevant. The event is gonna start and he's gotta do what he's gotta do. And I was like, that is actually very fair. And that's again, from a perspective of somebody who probably got asked, how do you feel way too many times at the wrong time? So when you're, when you're at the start line, it's not the time. How do you feel? Like, I feel like I gotta fucking go to work right now. I gotta do what I gotta do. You know, it's, more, it's a, okay, is there anything you need? Yes, no, no, okay. Great, let's go. So that is actually a super helpful thing for me as a coach that, that I try to practice much more than just now. There's times to know how are you feeling today before a training session? It's a totally different animal than 30 seconds before the start or two minutes before the start of a world championships. You don't wanna have questions clouding you at that point, but before a training session or after something, how did that go? How are you feeling? For sure, that can be a very valuable input. It's just about when you ask a question like that. Yeah. When it can have value. Well, thanks, Neil. Thanks for joining yeah. us on the podcast. It's a pleasure, pleasure to finally touch face. And um, hopefully uh, we might touch face again with Campbell and myself doing a, a cheeky Sufferfest yeah. program or two throughout the year. That would be good. I'd, I'd, you know, would love to see that. Yeah.